Good morning. I hope that you're doing well today. I'm excited to wrap up our summer series that we've been going through of Ezra and Nehemiah that we've called Return and Rebuild. I think it's been a great series. We've had a lot of good stuff that we've been able to learn from it so far. Uh, but I do want to warn you uh, that today has the potential to be a little bit of a downer when you actually see how this book ends. Uh, so before we dive into it, I just want to ask you a question. Have you ever been really excited about something that you thought was going really well, and then all of a sudden it just kind of took a turn that you weren't expecting, and it was a huge letdown? Uh, we can probably think of several experiences like this in, in your own life. Uh, for me, the, the first thing that comes to mind is actually... The, uh, it's a sports analogy. Given that I'm a Cincinnati sports fan, I have plenty of uh, material to draw from here. But the uh, best example of this for me where I was really excited about something and there was a major letdown was the uh, 2012 Cincinnati Reds season. We had a great team that year. We won, I think it was like 97 games or something, which is a lot for baseball. <clears throat> and uh, we made the playoffs. We had not won a playoff series since 1995, so we were on a 17-year uh, playoff drought. And uh, this year, it just felt like this was going to be the year things were different and that we were going to uh, actually win our first playoff series in quite some time. We went out, we were playing the San Francisco Giants, best of five series. We went out to San Francisco and won the first two games. And so that meant we were coming back to Cincinnati and only had to win one game out of the three left uh, to be able to advance in the playoffs. And uh, I was actually lucky enough to get tickets to that game. Uh, so we went, we had a guy pitching that was a great pitcher at that time. And uh, we, we played a great game, but ended up losing in extra innings. So it was heartbreaking, but you're thinking, okay, no big deal. We still have two more chances. All we've got to do is win one of those games. Uh, certainly, we're going to survive in advance. Well, it turns out that we actually ended up blowing both of those games and losing all three when we came back here to Cincinnati. And uh, that was the very disappointing end to what seemed like a very promising 2012 Cincinnati Reds team. Now, I tell you that story because reading Nehemiah, reading Ezra and Nehemiah is kind of the, the emotion you're going to feel is somewhat similar to the emotion I had in watching that uh, 2012 red season look so promising and then end in pretty much utter failure and collapse. Um, so I, I just want to document a little bit of what we've seen happen so far in Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, we call this series Return and Rebuild because it's all about this return that the Jewish people had from exile. They had been very sinful in the land that God had given them. So he sent them into exile under the Babylonians. But 70 years later, he freed them uh, as the Persian Empire conquered Babylonia. And King Cyrus allowed them to start returning to uh, their homeland and to start rebuilding it. And so over the course of this, there were really three main waves of people. Uh, the first were, were led under Zerubbabel and Joshua, and their major accomplishment was that they rebuilt the temple. And the second major wave came back under Ezra, and his major accomplishment was that he revived uh, the people's understanding of the law. He retaught that to them and, and helped them to commit to following it. And then the third wave came under Nehemiah, and his major contribution was that he uh, helped rebuild the walls of Jerusalem so that the city could be safe. So those are really the three major things that we've seen in uh, Ezra and Nehemiah with them coming back out of exile is that they rebuilt the temple, they relearned the law, and uh, they rebuilt the walls. Now, all of that is great. And as you're reading this, you're thinking, man, this is really encouraging. Uh, there, there's a lot of things that are moving in the right direction. 
And as a reader, you might actually be even more excited because you're thinking there's even better things on the horizon beyond just having a temple, a commitment to the law, and having walls. You're actually hoping that there's uh, what Tim Mackey from the Bible Project would call this prophetic package of hope uh, that you're looking forward to that's about to be unlocked. And the reason you think that is because of the way that Ezra started his book. Ezra 1.1 tells us, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. So Ezra and Nehemiah, which by the way, these were always treated by one, uh, as one unit, even though we have them as two different books in our English Bibles. Um, the, right from the beginning, he's, he's putting our minds back to Jeremiah. And so now we're thinking about, oh, there's this word of Jeremiah that's going to be fulfilled. What is that? And now we start getting even more excited, looking into some of what the prophets have to say about this great time of future prosperity for Israel, that God is going to restore their fortunes. And uh, there, there's these really beautiful pictures of what life is going to look like when they're fully restored. And so as we've started on that track and we've seen progress with the temple, the law, and the walls, we're thinking, man, this is going great. We're, we're going to usher in this great time of prosperity that Jeremiah and some of the other prophets were speaking about. And so they had a lot to celebrate. And uh, if you were with us last week, that's exactly what we saw. Chad took us through Nehemiah chapter 12, where they had finished the building of the walls. And they actually had this big uh, praise parade, where they walked around the whole city singing praises to God for all the wonderful things that he had done and how he had reestablished his people and helped them live securely in Jerusalem. Now, this would have been a great ending to the book. Like, this is the Disney World ending. This is the one that we wish we would have had, where it's just, cool, this is happy. Ezra and Nehemiah is a great story about how if you put your mind to something and work hard and, and overcome opposition that you face on the way, you can accomplish anything you set your mind to. The only problem is, that's not the message of Ezra and Nehemiah. And the reason I say that is because we still have chapter 13. And chapter 13 is when we're going to see a dramatic turn in what happens here. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it's bad to work hard and set your mind to something and overcome opposition. That's good. But the message that Ezra and Nehemiah is showing us is that that alone is not going to be enough to accomplish God's purposes. And so as we'll see, this book is actually going to end on a depressing note, but the sermon's not going to. Because thankfully, we see that Ezra and Nehemiah is not the end of the Bible. Um, And we're going to see what is this story's place in the Bible? What is it actually accomplishing? And what is it pointing to? Why is this in the the Bible? And and what can we actually learn from it today as Christians? So I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself there, though. I just want to pray, and then we'll start diving into the text of Nehemiah 13. God, we love you, and uh, we thank you that you are good and awesome, and that you are a God that does restore and God, we look forward to the day that uh, you're going to fully restore creation. And, and uh, God, we look forward to the day that that full prophetic package of hope is, is going to be opened. But God, right now as we wait, I ask that you would help us to understand the time that we're in. And Lord, I pray specifically this morning that you would help us to understand the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and how they fit together, and what we can learn from them, God. I pray that you would uh, teach us this morning from your word. Help us to learn it and to apply it in our lives. We love you. We thank you so much for who you are. And we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. 
All right, so we're going to be in uh, Nehemiah chapter 13, starting at verse 1. And just to let you know, uh, it's going to start off by saying, on that day, uh, that's sp- speaking about that big uh, praise parade day that they had going around and, and uh, celebrating the completion of the walls of Jerusalem. So here we see Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now, before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where there had previously, where they previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levite singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Okay, so Nehemiah 13, really what we're going to see here over the course of this chapter is this series of major mistakes that show how all of these great things that had been worked for and accomplished were actually already starting to be undone by the unfaithfulness of the people. So I've kind of categorized the chapter into three major mistakes. And the first one is what I would call their boundary mistake. I call it this because in, in this first section of the chapter, we see that they drew boundaries that were both too exclusive and not exclusive enough in the way that they actually practiced them. Here's what I mean by that. In verse 1, we see that they read the law of Moses and they discovered that they, there was no Ammonite or Moabite that was supposed to enter their assembly. And so their response to this was uh, that they excluded all foreigners from their assembly. Now, what they read was actually pretty much a direct quote from Deuteronomy 23, 3-6, where it does indeed uh, tell them that they're supposed to exclude Ammonites and Moabites specifically from the assembly. And that's because of the sin that's documented there, that they failed to meet them with food and water and that they hired Balaam uh, to prophesy against them. But outside of that, there's no other prohibition for saying you're not supposed to let any other foreigners in. So why is it that they would read this prohibition against Ammonites and Moabites and decide that instead they're just going to throw out all foreigners entirely? Well, I have to speculate a little bit here, but my guess is that they're going with the mentality of it's better to be safe than sorry. And uh, if they weren't supposed to let Ammonites and Moabites in, they might as well just be safe and kick out all the foreigners so they can be sure that they're not letting anybody in to corrupt them that uh, that they didn't want around. Now, I call this the practice of setting up hedges. And what I mean by that is God gives you a command and you really want to obey it. And so sometimes even in the goodness of your heart, you actually set up a hedge that's even further from that command. So uh, if you, you say, if I don't 
cross this hedge that I've drawn, which is my own rule, then I'll make sure that I certainly don't get to the spot where I actually cross the boundary of what God told me to do. Uh, we do this all the time, and it's not always a bad practice, okay? So say, for example, you see that the Bible clearly condemns drunkenness. So you set up a hedge and say, well, I'm just not going to drink at all, because if I don't drink at all, then I know that I won't cross into drunkenness. Or maybe you do this... Um, in the area of sexual purity, maybe you're dating somebody and you realize, okay, well, I, I don't want to commit sexual immorality. There's a lot of that in, in the Bible is, that's condemned. So in order to protect uh, myself, my girlfriend from falling into sexual immorality, we're going to set up certain boundaries where maybe we're not even going to kiss each other or something like that, just to make sure that we don't fall into a place that we don't want to be. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with those things. As a matter of fact, I think sometimes setting up those hedges can be a really great and helpful idea. But what we have to be careful about is never letting our hedges uh, get so big that they come to the point that they actually start to infringe on something else that God has told us to do. And that our hedges become so important to us that they actually start to cause us to hurt others and to sin against God in a different way. And this is exactly what I think was going on here by excluding all foreigners, which I'll get to in a second. But to even use our examples of alcohol and sex, it can be a great hedge for you to decide that you're not going to uh, drink at all. But when you allow that to cross into making you judge others who do drink legally and responsibly and are using alcohol in a, in a fine way under the, uh, under the teaching of the Bible then all of a sudden you have now allowed your hedge to cause you to move into sin by judging others. And it might cause you to start hurting others too by the way that you treat them if you look down upon them. Or to use the example of sex, sometimes we might create a hedge in our, in our minds where we say, hey, I want to stay away from sexual immorality so badly that I'm just going to brand sex as this evil and dirty and nasty thing in my mind, which is great for helping keep you from sexual immorality as, as a, a single person. But sometimes people carry this into their marriages. And because they actually have an unhealthy view of sex that was effective in helping keep them away from sexual immorality, it ends up causing problems in their marriage. Because rather than seeing how God has actually designed sex, which is a good thing, but it's just meant to be within the confines of marriage, they've rebranded it as something else. And with that, it actually starts to cause damage in their marriage relationship as they're unable to have a, a fulfilling and loving sexual relationship with their spouse. You see, we have to be very careful about letting our hedges get in the way of living obediently to the Lord. Because, of course, the desire is even to be obedient, but sometimes they can cause us to do the exact opposite. And so with this situation, we see all of these foreigners are, are excluded. But the reality is, God never told them to do that. As a matter of fact, Jesus hated it when the Pharisees would set up all of these hedges that they would set up. Look at what he told them in Matthew 15, 6-9. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as is written, This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. May we never be people that establish our own tradition above the commandment of God. And so what is the commandment of God when it comes to uh, the Jews and their relations to foreigners? Well, we see that, yeah, there were certain exclusions in place for various reasons. 
But ultimately, God had called them to be a light to the nations. Look at what Jeremiah, the guy who we, we were talking about earlier, we're hoping that his prophecies are going to come to fruition. Look at what he wrote in, in chapter 3, 17 of his book. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. And all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. So we see that Jerusalem is actually supposed to be a gathering place of the nations that they come to worship the Lord, not a place where they're just totally excluded from. Look at what Isaiah said in chapter 60, verse one three, verses 1 to 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. <clears throat> but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. You see, God never just blessed his people solely for their sake. They were blessed to be a blessing. And in their desire to exclude foreigners that may cause them to sin against God, they actually ended up neglecting part of their mission to be a light to the world by excluding all foreigners. This is kind of the equivalent of the Christian that is so afraid of falling into sin that he desires to just completely withdraw from all society. Uh, you think of monks or, or people that just want to go and retreat to the countryside and not deal with anybody else so that they can re remain pure. The problem is that they're neglecting their call to mission to go in to impact others as well. Now, I don't want you to be confused here. It's bad to set up hedges that, that infringe upon the other commandments of God, but it's also bad to actually commit the sin that God is telling us not to commit too. We do best if we neither add nor subtract from what God has told us, but rather try to actually carry out what he has told us accurately. Because as I see that Israelites here, the Jews, they had a boundary problem. Not only did they create these wide boundaries that kept others out, but even in that, they still actually didn't practice the thing that God told them to, which was actually the exclusion of the Moabites and Ammonites. Here's why I say this. We read in verse 4 that Eliashib the priest had given a room in the temple to this man named Tobiah. Now, first off, this is totally not okay. The temple was not supposed to be a place that you were renting out as an Airbnb to uh, other people that wanted to come and stay there. The, the temple had these rooms that were designed for storing uh, materials that were necessary for the function of the temple and the way that they would worship God there. So Eliashib instead decided that he would clear out one of those rooms and give it to this guy named Tobiah. Now, who is this guy named Tobiah? Well, we've actually read about him earlier in the book of Nehemiah, and uh, he is not a good influence. Matter of fact, when we're first introduced to him in Nehemiah 2, 9 through 10, this is what we read. This is Nehemiah when he's first coming on his mission to, to come get started on the project of the wall. He says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. <clears throat> now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. All right, there's two really important things that we learn here 
about Tobiah. First off, he was upset that someone was coming to help the people of Israel. This was not a man of God. This was not somebody that wanted to support their mission. In fact, he had been a person that was opposed to this mission the whole time. Not only was he upset in, in Nehemiah 2, but we see later in the book of Nehemiah that he was part of a plot to try to stop the work on the walls. And not only do we see that, but we also learn that he was an Ammonite. Now, do you remember the the verse from Deuteronomy that they read in the law about who they were actually supposed to expel was the Moabites and the Ammonites. They expelled everybody, yet here Tobiah the Ammonite is actually living in the temple. Not just he's in their assembly, he literally has a room that he's living in in the temple. Now, you see that this is, of course, a major problem. Uh, that, that somebody who has been opposed to the work of God, who's actively opposing the Israelites, has now come in and taken up residence in the most holy place in their land. Now, it's easy for us to judge what Eliashib the priest did. It's clearly wrong. Uh, but we see that it says he was related to Tobiah. And so we don't know exactly what this relation is. Some translations just say he was closely associated with But what we might see going on here, we don't know why Eliashib made this decision, but it might have been because he wanted to help out his cousin or or whoever Tobiah might have been. If they were related, it was probably actually by marriage. Um, But we we have to ask, this makes us think about things in our own lives. Like, do you sometimes sacrifice obedience to the Lord because you want to be popular with certain people, particularly, particularly your family? You know, oftentimes uh, connections that we have with our family end up causing us to put that above our faithfulness to the Lord. You know, I also don't know what uh, Eliashib had to gain. It seems like Tobiah was probably a man of some influence in that land. So maybe he had money or power to gain. And if that's the case, then we have to ask, man, when I'm able to grab certain advantages here in the world by being unfaithful to the Lord, do I do that? We need to be people that realize our faithfulness to God is so much more important than anyone else that we can please or any sort of material gain that we could ever have in this world. Now, Nehemiah promptly realizes the problem that's going on here, right? Uh, So he was away in Persia, but when he comes back, he kicks uh, Tobiah out of this room. He cleanses it and he restores the room for what it's supposed to do. Now, that's great, but... The fact that it took Nehemiah to come back and do this shows that all the reforms really hadn't taken uh, place in the heart of the people. Like Nehemiah seems to be the only one that really cares enough to actually do anything about it. And even in this first mistake that we see here, I told you there were three major accomplishments that we saw uh, through the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. That they rebuilt the temple, that they reestablished the law, and that they rebuilt the walls. Well, in each of these mistakes, you're actually going to see how all those accomplishments were majorly undermined. So, uh, with the temple being rebuilt, it was undermined in that there was literally an Ammonite who was opposed to the Lord and was supposed to be removed from their assembly, who was living in it. With the law, we see that they overstepped it by throwing foreigners out that they weren't supposed to, and then they still didn't follow it, and that they didn't throw out the people that they actually were supposed to, at least in uh, Tobiah's case. And then with the walls, we see that they were being misused. They were supposed to be there to help protect uh, the Jews from their enemies. But instead, they actually used them to exclude people that they should have been a light to. Now, 
these these mistakes were primarily the mistakes of just a couple guys, right? Of Eliashib and and Tobias. So maybe you're thinking, okay, you're being too harsh on the people as a whole. Well, if we read on, we see that the people as a whole were really undermining all of these accomplishments as well. So let's read on here. Pick back up in Nehemiah chapter 13, uh, verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakor, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Uh, Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish of all kinds and goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. And I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Okay, so here in this next section, we have what I have called the material mistake. And I say that because we see that the Jews were making really bad decisions when it came to their material wealth and resources. Uh, first, they were being stingy with what they did have. And second, they were being greedy, trying to accumulate even more. And both of these things caused them to sin against the Lord. So first, they were stingy with what they did have. The uh, people were supposed to give a tithe, uh, so 10% of everything that they had was supposed to be contributed to the, the Levites. The Levites were the people that took care of the temple. They were essentially full-time ministers. So they're doing all the functions that are necessary to carry out worship for the country at the temple. Now, this means that they can't be out working their fields the way that everybody else is. And so God had designed that they would be provided for by the tithe coming in and, and supplying the needs of the Levites. However, we see that this was something that the people were neglecting. They were not bringing their tithes in. 
And so naturally, the Levites were like, well, we're going to go find other jobs because if we're not going to be provided for, we can't just sit here and starve. So they start to abandon the work of the temple. And naturally, the, the temple becomes neglected. Nobody is there to do the things that it needs to because the people aren't providing the resources that are necessary to do it. And unfortunately, I think that this reflects a lot of what we see actually happen in the church today as well. Uh, There are so many people that say that they're Christians, yet they do not contribute financially to help continue to drive the work of Christian ministry. In the same way that the ministry of the Levites was severely hampered by the fact that their people did not give resources in order to make it happen. We as Christians hamper uh, how many people can be sent out into the mission field and how many churches can run effectively if we choose not to uh, give our material wealth and resources to contribute to that mission. So we must realize that if we are stingy in much the same way that they were stingy, that there are serious consequences for that. And so let us as Christians be a generous people that are excited to give to the mission of God, that don't hold back our material wealth, but rather use it in a way that is constantly trying to facilitate the worship of the Lord, which is exactly what the Israelites were supposed to be doing, but they were neglecting to do here out of their stinginess. But not only were they being stingy and not giving their tithes to the Levites so that they could do their work, but also we see that their greed was driving them to break the Sabbath. Um, because they wanted more and more, we see they're out there treading wine presses on the Sabbath. They're, they're not taking this day of rest that God had told them to, to take. He said, six days you're going to labor, but on the seventh day you will rest. Well, can you produce more in six days or seven days? In their minds, they're thinking, I can produce more in seven days. And if I can produce more, that means more wealth. And so we see that they're totally neglecting this very important rule that God had given them for how they were supposed to order their society. And so out of their greed, they were also led into sin against the Lord. As they did their work and they let other people come into the city and engage in business there on the Sabbath as well when they weren't supposed to. Now, once again, Nehemiah sees this problem and he takes action to correct it. And we see him correct it here. But, but once again, what are we learning? If Nehemiah is not there, it doesn't, nobody seems to act the way that they're supposed to. So what does this spell for us when Nehemiah dies? Or, or what does this even teach us about the heart of the people, right? Nehemiah can, by force, try and get the people to do things, right? He actually threatens these merchants that were coming in and doing business on the Sabbath. He says, if you don't stay away from here, I'm going to lay hands on you. Meaning, I'm going to commit acts of violence to stop you from doing this. We saw even in the, the earlier uh, section where Nehemiah forcefully threw out all the stuff that Tobiah had in the temple. So Nehemiah is taking action to, to get results, But when you have to use force to get results, what does that tell you about the hearts of the people that you're trying to get results from? It means that their hearts really aren't in it. They don't actually want the same thing that you want. And so you can force an external behavior, but you can't actually end up changing the heart. And so here in this material mistake, we actually see the major accomplishments, every one of them, undermined again. Look at this. With the temple, it was, it was undermined because the necessary materials were not given to make its functioning work. People weren't bringing in the tithe and therefore the Levites weren't there to do the jobs that they needed to do. The law, they were not giving the commanded tithe that they were supposed to. And they were ignoring the rule about the Sabbath and continuing to work and do business on it. 
And then finally, the walls. The, the walls were being undermined because they weren't doing what they were supposed to. The walls are supposed to keep out foreign enemies, right? They're supposed to protect Jerusalem. But here we see that these merchants were freely welcome to come into the city and do their business on the Sabbath. Now, Nehemiah, of course, uses them to keep them out. But I'm talking before Nehemiah, where we see the hearts of the people. They're, they're not even using the walls that they have to keep out the corruption that was coming in from the outside. So here we see all of their major accomplishments being majorly undermined. But we're not finished with chapter 13. We actually still have one more major mistake to read about. So let's pick back up here in chapter 13, verse 23. In those days, also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. So shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God. Because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O God, for good. And that is how the book of Nehemiah ends. Three massive failures that are documented one after another. So this last mistake I'm going to call here the marriage mistake. And this one's a little bit more complex. If you were with us when Aaron preached through the uh, end of the book of Ezra, it might almost seem like a repeat to you. Uh, there's a very similar problem that he preached through, which we saw first off in the time of Ezra that people were uh, marrying these these foreign women, and, and Ezra realized that that was going to be problematic, and so he commanded everybody to divorce their foreign wives and send them off. And in that sermon, we actually discussed was that even a good idea? Because remember, just because we see uh, the leaders do something here doesn't mean it's necessarily something God told them to do, or that it is inherently good. Um, we know that God hates divorce, and so I think you can make a strong argument that Ezra may have actually had a bad decision in telling them to send their wives off. But something else that we see is really important is that God really values purity and devotion and holiness, and that he does not want anyone leading his people away from him. And so that's really the concern that we see here with uh, Nehemiah. It, the, the problem is he, he goes back to their history even and saying, man, we can't be people that commit the same sins that our fathers did that got us exiled in the first place. He goes back to Solomon and he says, I'll reread this in Nehemiah 13, 26. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him and he was beloved by his God and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, Foreign women made even him to sin. 
All right, so here's the important thing. I don't believe that God's heart is in any way racist or against uh, interracial marriage. The problem here is not interracial marriage, but interfaith marriage. And so... Nehemiah is having a hard time separating those two things in his mind. But I don't want you as a 21st century person to get confused and think that the Bible in some ways is condemning marriage between whites and blacks or, you know, Chinese and Mexicans or something like that. There's no uh, prohibition of any kind like that. But what he is warning against, what the scriptures are warning us against, is interfaith marriage. And Solomon, when he married these foreign wives, it wasn't just that they had a foreign ethnicity, but rather that they served foreign gods and that they caused him to sin. And this is the exact same concern that Nehemiah has here as he sees all of these foreign wives. And remember, two of the three people groups that were mentioned were the Moabites and the Ammonites, who were two people that were supposed to be excluded completely from Israel. And and that was, once again, because of a sin that they committed there. I think that God knows what he's doing in that. Um, There's complexity in that that I don't have time to get into here right now. But what I do want to say is that, undoubtedly, the major problem here is sin. And the way that uh, women that worshipped foreign gods would lead Israel, inevitably, into sin. So, Nehemiah wants... uh, very dramatically to protect people against that. So once again, we actually see him resort to force. And we see that he starts to beat people and, uh, and pull out their hair and make them swear that they're not going to uh, marry these foreign women. They're not going to give their, their daughters or sons in marriage in this way. Now, I, I believe that this idea, this, this total prohibition against foreign marriages is actually another example of a hedge that was set up, that didn't necessarily need to be set up. But it is important that they cared a lot about their purity. And if they were going to marry foreign women, I think it would have been vital that those women were actual worshipers of the one true God. Now, there are a few objective things that we can look at and see that uh, problems were being caused by these mixed marriages. And the first was that uh, their children couldn't speak Hebrew. Now, why is it significant that the children couldn't speak Hebrew? Well, there are no translations of the scriptures at this time, right? If you want to read the scripture and you want to understand the scripture, you've got to know Hebrew. And so there's a massive problem if you are trying to set up a society that will be faithful to God and keep his covenant, and the children aren't learning Hebrew, which is the language of the covenant, and it hasn't been translated into a million languages like what we have it today then you've got to say, how in the world are they going to be able to be successful at keeping that covenant? They're not. And so Nehemiah has great concern over the fact that these children can't speak Hebrew. And second, he's, he talks about how the priesthood has been defiled. We go back to this, this character, Eliashib. He has a grandson who uh, has married a foreign woman. And uh, we don't see the exact specifics of how exactly the priesthood uh, was defiled here. Uh, Maybe in Nehemiah's mind, it was simply because a foreign woman had been married. But I think that you can argue that there's no doubt the priesthood had been defiled, even ethically. Because we saw the behavior of Eliashib. That he was renting out this room, giving this room to Tobiah the Ammonite in the temple. And he, and he was neglecting the, the purpose of having the, the uh, storeroom for all the supplies that were needed for the function of the temple. And also remember 
that we learned Tobiah was a said a relative, or at least closely associated with Eliashib. Well, Eliashib's grandson is marrying who? A foreigner. So, I don't know, maybe there's some sort of marriage connection that ended up causing all this stuff and, and bringing some corrupt morals and corrupt practices into the priesthood. I don't know. But we do see that some of the people at the highest levels of leadership were being corrupted through these mixed marriages in much the same way that Solomon, king of Israel, had been previously. And so here again, we see that the three major accomplishments of Ezra and Nehemiah are being undermined through this marriage mistake. With the temple, we see that the priesthood who took care of the temple uh, had been corrupted. With the law, we see that many were not even learning the language of the law. They didn't know Hebrew. They couldn't understand it. And then with the walls, once again, we see that they're supposed to keep out enemies. But instead, they were being ineffective at that. As enemies were actually being welcomed in. Uh, women that, that worshipped foreign gods and were leading the hearts of the Israelites astray were being welcomed right inside the walls. And they were doing nothing to actually truly protect God's covenant people. So what do we do with all of this? Right? Like, what do we do with Ezra and Nehemiah? Because sometimes I think we see this book and we, we try to say, oh yeah, Nehemiah is a great study in leadership and how to, you know, get something done when you get a plan and you organize people and you stick to it. But the reality is I really don't think that we can say that that's the message of Ezra and Nehemiah when we see the total failure that it ended in. I mean, God bless him, the guy did the best that he could, and so did Ezra, and so did Zerubbabel and Joshua. But at the end of the day, we see that the hearts of the people were not really turned back to the Lord. And you, you see that there's almost this um, assurance that you have that they're headed right back in the same direction where they were before. And just as God had sent them into exile once, we can pretty much see God's judgment is going to come again at some point on these people. And I get the tone that Nehemiah is almost resigned to that, right? Because three times in chapter 13, you see Nehemiah ask God to remember him for what he did. And I might be reading too much into this, but when I read that, I kind of get the, uh, the feeling that he's basically saying, hey, I know judgment is coming for these people. I know it's all screwed up. I know that ultimately the prosperity and everything that we're hoping to usher in is not coming, at least for this generation. But please at least remember me and spare me from whatever wrath you may bring on these people because I did my best. Now, as we see this, it, it looks like the mission was a total failure. It was a new generation, but they were still committing the same sins as the previous generations. And instead of utopia, it looked like they were headed for certain judgment down the road. So this downer of a, a message that we get from Ezra and Nehemiah, I think is actually very, very important for us to read. And there's a reason why I wanted us to study this book this summer. So there's three major takeaways, I think, that we can grab from this, this Ezra and Nehemiah unit as a whole. First, unless God changes the heart of a person, all of the external changes are in vain. Psalm 127, 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Ezra and Nehemiah has been a study for us of really well-intentioned leaders that did the best job that they could to uh, bring the people out of exile and build a godly society. But despite their best efforts, it still failed. We see the hearts of the people did not really turn back. And so this is an important thing for us to remember as we are doing ministry. 
our best plans and strategies are not going to actually be able to change the hearts of people. It doesn't mean that it's bad to execute those, right? Like, I think it was good that Ezra and Nehemiah and, and others uh, walked in faithfulness to the Lord and did the best they could. But this also helps us to understand sometimes when even when we are doing everything we can and there's still failure, that, that sometimes it's just not going to work if the heart of a person doesn't change. And the Lord has to do something to move that. I don't understand that whole process completely. But Jesus himself, we have to remember, preached to many who rejected him. As a matter of fact, John 6 was a time where Jesus preached a really weird sermon about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and people turned away from him in droves. And in John 6, 44, Jesus told him, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so we see there's got to be some inner working of God to affect actual change in the life of a person. And so this needs to be something that makes us a people of prayer that are desperate for God to move. Now, I feel like this is especially timely for us because we're at a spot here specifically as our church, H2O, that all of our ministry plans for the fall have, have been thrown out the window. Like we, Everything that we're so used to doing, all of our strategies, our best practices, none of that stuff is able to work here in the age of COVID-19. And so really all we're left with is, is this desperation to say, God, we need you to move. We need you to show us how you want to work. And we just want to get behind that. We want you to accomplish your purposes and help us to be a part of it however we can. But we don't want to get too wrapped up in what the externalities have to look like. Because even though Ezra and Nehemiah and, and Zerubbabel and Joshua, they were successful in all the externalities. The temple was standing. The walls were built. The problem is the hearts of the people were not actually turned to God. And we don't want to be a church that builds a temple and builds the walls, but has a church full of people whose hearts are far from the Lord. So that's our first takeaway is that God has to be the one to move for true change to actually happen. The second thing we see is that even after Ezra and Nehemiah, the people were still actually waiting to come out of exile. You see, we thought that this was a return from exile, and in some ways it was. It was a physical return from exile. They did start living in their land again, but they were never truly back. Their hearts were still not really for the Lord. They were still always under the pressure of a foreign power. And um, this, this is not lost on the Jews, okay? In our English Bibles, uh, the last book of your Bible is going to say Malachi, who was the latest prophet. And so there's a reason why it's organized that way. But when you look at the way that a lot of Hebrew Bibles are ordered, uh, there's some actual variation in their order, but a very common order for them is actually to have the book of Chronicles last. First and second Chronicles. We have it divided into two, but the Hebrews had it as one. That would actually be the last book in their Bible. Now, this is very interesting because Chronicles is an overview of the Old Testament history. Chronicles 1.1 starts right at the beginning. Chronicles 1.1 says this, Adam, Seth, Enosh. This is literally the first words of, of Chronicles. Starts at the very beginning with Adam. Now, look at the last words of Chronicles. This is 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 36, verses 22 to 23. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord may, may be by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, 
has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Now, that's the Edict of Cyrus, which starts the book of Ezra. So we see that Chronicles ends its chronology actually before the time of Ezra. Even though in many um, Hebrew Bibles, it's actually put as the last book. It's not chronologically last, but there's an intention for why this was done. And what it's doing is it's really kind of communicating, we're still in exile, we still need to actually come out of it. And this is not just a Christian interpretation here. There are actually plenty of Jewish rabbis and teachers that would have the similar interpretation that uh, Chronicles being the last book in their Bible is communicating this idea that we still haven't really come out of exile. And and really the only one that's going to bring us out of exile is Messiah, the anointed one that's yet to come. And that brings me to the last major takeaway, which is that all of the scriptures really do point to Jesus. Back when I introduced this series, I gave my rationale for why I wanted our church to to go through this. And uh, one of the reasons I said is that these books tell part of the story about what God is doing to save us and bring about total restoration of all creation. They tell an important part of this story, and here's the part of the story that they're telling us as Christians. It's that same thing we talked about first, that despite our best efforts, we really can't bring it about. If guys like Ezra and Nehemiah and and Zerubbabel and Joshua, these guys that were committed to the Lord, they couldn't bring it about, then we see that we need someone else even greater to really bring about the restoration of hope, to, to bring in that prophetic package of hope that Jeremiah was talking about. And so the good news is, as Christians, I told you this sermon wasn't going to end on a downer. You see, some Jews, even though they would agree that they haven't really come out of exile, many of them are still waiting on Messiah. But we believe as Christians that, yeah, they were still waiting at the end of Nehemiah. But about 400 years later, Jesus, the Messiah, would come. And that he would be the one that ushers in this prophetic package of hope. You see, despite the best efforts of the people, they could not follow the law. But Jesus himself followed the law perfectly. He was the only one to ever be without sin. And so as he lived this perfect life, then he uh, would later actually give himself as a sacrifice. And as he gave himself for a sacrifice, he ushered in a new covenant, not an old covenant that was based upon the people's obedience to God, but rather a new covenant that was based in his blood, that was based in forgiveness through grace in Christ. And so as Jesus died on the cross, even before he did that, he told his disciples uh, at the last supper, he took the wine and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And so as we see the failure of the old covenant, even as the people tried their best in Nehemiah, it points to the need for this new covenant that Jesus would institute. And this is why this becomes such an important part of our Bibles. Because we see that we need the new covenant. And so Jesus perfectly fulfilled the commands of the law. He perfectly walked in the way that Ezra and Nehemiah and the Israelites could not. He died on the cross and he rose from the dead. And as he rose from the dead, he defeated the curse of sin and death so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And not only could we be forgiven of our sins, but we could be invited into new and eternal life 
with him forever. And so this perfect uh, utopia of a society that they were trying to build and that they failed to in Ezra and Nehemiah, we know is actually not failed entirely. We're still waiting on it. But we see that it's not going to be ushered in by a return from Persia to Jerusalem. Rather, it's going to be ushered in by the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so with that, we wait for the day that he will return. And, and, and we wait for the day that that perfect utopia will be ushered in. Listen to what Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 13, uh, 4, 13 to 18. He says, Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is for your sake... So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Ezra and Nehemiah couldn't bring about the things that are unseen, these eternal kingdom that Jesus ushered in, but he did. And so I would propose to you that this is the point of Ezra and Nehemiah. That this is the point. They played a part in a grand story of redemption by showing us that we need something more than just the best intention leaders to create the society that God desires. We need God himself. And praise God that he has given us himself. When he gave himself on the cross. He's invited you into a relationship with him. And I pray that you will walk with him now. And into eternity. As one day. We come into that fully restored society. That they were looking for. In Ezra and Nehemiah. Let's pray. God we love you. And we thank you. That you love us so much. Uh, We thank you that. You've made a way for us to be forgiven. And that Jesus our Messiah has come. And that he's coming again. So, Lord, please give us strength as we wait for the day that that perfect utopia actually does come in. But in the meantime, Lord, I ask that you'd help us to live as people that are faithful to you, that have a deep love for you, that have a concern for others, and um, that, that do our best to take care of one another in the time that we have. We love you, Lord. We thank you for who you are. And we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen.